We are continuing in our series on Matthew, and we are in Matthew chapter 6. And just as Jesus was beginning the heart of his sermon on the mountainside, he began it with a shocking statement that we looked at two weeks ago and covered some of the shocking statements that followed last week. Jesus said, as his disciples were sitting there at his feet and as other people who were not really his disciples were gathered around him, he said to his disciples and to those that were gathered that the righteousness of his people had to surpass the righteousness of the very best law keepers and religious people that they knew, the Pharisees. So he was telling his disciples that if they're going to be kingdom people, they will be righteous, and they will be more righteous than anybody that in their time they could ever compare themselves to, the Pharisees. And very helpfully, Jesus doesn't leave his disciples or us hanging. He immediately begins to unpack the very real purpose of the law, and he begins in the heart of his Sermon on the Mount a series of contrasts to compare false righteousness with true righteousness and to compare people who are outside the kingdom with people who are inside the kingdom. And we covered the first six of those things that he unpacked from the law last week. His kingdom citizens are going to treat each other and and behave in a way uh, that's shockingly gracious, in ways that nobody could understand, either religious people or those outside of religion entirely. And he gets very specific about how his disciples will finally start to become image bearers of God again as we were originally created to be. So as you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, read it in the light of Jesus explaining to his disciples, this is how you will become Christ-like. This is how you will be an image bearer of me. And as I am the image of the Father, you will become image bearers of God as you were originally created to be. And you find that image-bearing and blessing in your life comes through the command. We don't follow the commands of God and then hope we get a treat at the end in blessing. The commands of God are in themselves blessing. Uh, To be merciful, to be forgiving, to turn the other cheek, to let go of our anger, to not commit adultery, to not objectify people, to not murder people, to, to not even have anger and hatred in your heart. That is the blessing of the Christian life. And we looked at that last week. And so Jesus tackled six of the most difficult interpersonal relationships, murder, violence, hatred, divorce, debt, animosity, all of those things. He said, in these areas of your life, you will be shockingly transformed and my kingdom people will be totally different than other people. Now, Jesus is going to continue on in his unpacking of the discipleship life or the kingdom life, and he's going to address three core concepts of our spiritual relationship with God and how, once again, his disciples are meant to live out of sincere hearts, a spiritual life that's in contrast to the world and in contrast to the simply religious. So in Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18, uh, he addresses three specific exercises of faith. He talks about giving praying, and fasting. And in Jewish life, in Jewish culture, almsgiving to the poor and to the tabernacle, to the church, prayer and fasting were three pillars of spiritual life, three disciplines that disciples of God went through or did. 
And Jesus addresses these issues of religious giving in verses 1 to 4, and then in verses 5 to 15, he talks about prayer, and in verses 6 to 18, he addresses the issue of fasting. And the opening line that sets up all three of these instructions from the Lord is this, in verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And from that point on, the next three teachings that he gives are framed within this context of hypocrisy, reward from man, versus reward from heaven. And all three follow that pattern, and we're going to unpack what they mean for us today just after I pray as we look into God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you especially for what we have in these days called the red letters, the words that we know are from the mouth of your son, his direct teaching to his disciples, to us. And so, Father, as we look into his teaching today, give us, by your Holy Spirit, understanding of how what he spoke 2,000 years ago carries as much weight and as much meaning for us today and how these words are powerful for transformation and powerful for us to live lives that are both pleasing to you and joyful and redeeming and healing in this life here and now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So all three of these expansions are, of, are expansions on that simple warning. Beware of the motives of your righteous activity, because your righteous activity may not be as righteous as you think, and there may be no reward in it, and understand that there is reward in true righteous behavior. And so the first thing that we want to notice here, as we often do when we come to the text of Scripture and we want to be wise in how we read, is to see that Jesus brackets each of these three God-directed activities with a triple repetition. Three times he follows a very similar format, just like before he followed the format of, you have heard it said, but I say, and he did that six times, you have heard it said, or it is, you've been taught this, but I tell you this. He has three different repetitions now for this section of his teaching. He says, don't be like hypocrites who do this, rather give prayer fast in this way. And he follows it up with, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so he follows this pattern three times in a row. And that's why we can safely take this block of teaching and say, Jesus intends to teach us something in these three things. He's, he's bracketed it. He's shown us that he's teaching us something with these three repetitions of this format. And what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting as true disciples, as kingdom citizens, your behavior in these matters of spiritual discipline should not look at all like the way other people behave. You, my kingdom citizens, are going to look very different than all the other religious people and all the other religions out there because your motives are going to come from a different place now. You're not motivated the same way they are. Now, I'm just telling you, and I'm warning my life group leaders, that I'm setting aside the first one this morning of giving. I'm going to cover it next week because Jesus kind of cycles back to it at the end. And so we're going to cover giving next week for the sake of time. Um, but in your life group notes, you will see that giving is there. So life group leaders, if you want to do giving, you can do it. The life group stands on its own. I would do it last in your group if you have time because we're going to come back to it next week again. Um, and so the first one we're looking at is going to be prayer in Matthew 6, 5 to 15. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
And quite often your translation will say they've received their full reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so this second teaching of Jesus in this three-part series is on prayer. Prayer, according to Jesus, is a normal and common part of Christian experience, and he expects his disciples, he expects his kingdom people to pray but they should practice prayer in a God-pleasing manner. And Jesus sets up the contrast. The word for hypocrite in the Greek that Jesus uses is hypocrites, which is a term for a Greek actor who's commonly wearing a mask. You've probably seen it in like old, uh, you know, pictures of old uh, Greek plays or Roman theater. The actors have that porcelain mask, and sometimes the mask even has like a little device in it that's like kind of like speaking into a cup so that it amplifies their voice and makes their voice different. The actors, the Greek actors, were expected to pretend they were somebody that they were not, which is fine for actors. It is not fine for Christians. The Pharisees were geniuses at theatrical religion. They were brilliant at pretending they were what they were not. But Jesus says it doesn't matter what other people think. It only matters what God sees. God sees backstage. God sees behind the curtain, if you will. He knows what's going on in secret, and that is where you will be rewarded. So... In regard to giving, the Pharisees blew trumpets and made a big show of it. With regard to prayer, they stood out in public in the most visible places. The Pharisees didn't just stand on the street, they stood on the street corners. Because why would you pray where only one street of people could see you, when you could stand on the corner where two streets worth of people could see you? Right? They were very conscious of where they were praying. And why would you pray somewhere in private when you could pray at the synagogue where all the holiest people could see just how holy you were? So Jesus points out here that the Pharisees are praying for public recognition. Then he speaks of the Gentiles or those of other religions or pagans who he says pray repetitively and exhaustively thinking that they're going to get credit for the amount of prayer that they have. And we see this even in uh, certain uh, religions and certain faiths where there is a certain dedication to mantras which are prayed over and over and over again. Or even they offload the duty of prayer to prayer wheels which are powered by the wind or by water. So as the prayer wheel spins, it is counted just as if you had said the prayer. All you have to do is touch the wheel as it's spinning. But if you can get thousands and thousands of prayers going up to God, then that will somehow get you credit. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter how many times you pray. It doesn't matter how many words you use. That's not how you get God's attention. That's not why God will answer your prayer. Jesus contrasts both the Pharisees and the Gentile or pagan prayer to say, pray secretly and pray simply. 
The problem with both Pharisees and Gentiles is that they don't truly know God. The the Pharisees have not experienced the acceptance of God, and so they crave the acceptance of men. If their prayer life, and if in their prayer life they were experiencing the acceptance of God, they would not need the acceptance of men, but because they don't experience that acceptance, they seek acceptance elsewhere. They've not experienced being counted as righteous by God, so they must seek being counted as righteous by men. On the Gentiles' part, they don't trust that God already knows what they need and is a good father who will provide, and so they try the squeaky wheel principle, assuming that if they pester God enough, if they keep God's attention by praying the right things over and over and over again enough times, then they will get God's attention through repetition. And if they don't do that, then they'll somehow miss out on his blessing because God may not be paying attention to them. So Jesus takes these two and contrasts them with his disciples or his kingdom people, and he essentially says, my disciples know God as Father. By the way we pray, it's evident that God's people treasure their Father. They seek his will, they trust him for provision, and they follow him in his nature of forgiveness, and they depend on him to guard and keep their righteousness. Now, Jesus is obviously not condemning all public prayer. Jesus prayed in public. He prayed in semi-private settings with his disciples. He prayed in public settings. He's not saying never, ever, ever pray over your meal when you're in a restaurant. He's not saying don't pray out loud at prayer meetings. And he's certainly not saying never have prayer in your worship service. We have to be careful to see what Jesus isn't saying here as much as what he is saying. That's not his point. His point is, is that all prayer ought to be with a view to God as its audience, not as Pharisees pray with a view to man as the audience, or as we pray to God, it's with the knowledge of who God truly is and understanding and trusting in the fatherhood and the goodness and the graciousness of God to answer our prayers, unlike the Gentiles who pray repetitiously and earnestly thinking God doesn't hear and won't answer. So Jesus is essentially saying, my disciples experience the freedom that comes from knowing God as their heavenly father. And so we have to ask ourselves that when we pray. Do we experience that freedom? Does our prayer reflect the nature of the disciple that Jesus emphasizes here? Jesus is saying, my disciples don't try to manipulate God when they pray with repetitious phrases meant to unlock some cosmic vending machine. They experience the freedom of following God's will rather than their own will. Now, in that regard, and I'm almost certain I don't have to say this, but just in case I do have to say it, I will say it. This is the modern version of prayer wheels, okay? If you see a Facebook post that tells you to pray a certain phrase three times a day for 20 weeks and to share that post with a friend every time you pray it, That's false teaching, okay? Just to be clear. That's paganism. Just because it has the word Jesus in it doesn't mean it's not paganism. So when you see those things on Facebook, they are essentially chain letter prayer wheels that are trying to teach you that there is a secret phrase that will unlock some sort of special blessing for you from God. That is idolatry. Don't do that stuff, okay? Just don't. And there's popular books out now that are trying to blend Eastern mysticism into Christian faith. 
They're trying to teach that Christian prayer should resemble mantras that are repeated over and over and over again in some sort of hyper-contemplative way until they have almost a drug-like effect on the brain. Prayers are not meant to be consciousness-altering in that way. Prayers are heartfelt conversations with our Heavenly Father that teach and transform us. They do transform us, but they transform us by the truth and wisdom that is imparted to us by the Holy Spirit in our communion with the Father, not through transcendental experiences. And we just want to notice here, too, in terms of prayer, that Jesus is not condemning all long prayers either here. He's not saying definitely don't pray for a long time. We know that Jesus himself prayed all night long on several occasions. He's not saying make sure that whatever you do, don't pray a long prayer. His point is this. The length of your prayer does not determine the effectiveness of God's answer. In fact, he says in this prayer that God already knows your prayer. And his answer is already in his will. Your heavenly father knows what you want before you ask him. And he already has an answer. And so in that, his disciples are encouraged to approach him in prayer with that knowledge. That's biblical knowledge or biblical logic. And you might stop and you might say, okay, Paul, that's confusing me. If God already knows what I want before I pray it and it's already in his will to answer according to his will, why do I even pray then? That doesn't seem logical to me. Well, that's our logic. Let's apply biblical logic. Who would you rather approach and with whom is the easier conversation? Approaching an authority who does not know why you're coming, is not predisposed to help you, and does not already have an answer planned for you that is helpful to you. Or would you rather approach an authority that already knows why you're coming, has already got an answer ready, and is by their nature good to answer your request in a way that is better and wiser than you could even ask for? Which one do you want to go to? The second one, right? We should be encouraged that our Father, who is good, already knows what we're going to ask, already has an answer in mind in His will, and His answer is better than what we could come up with on our own, and that is a very easy conversation to go to and to have with an authority, with a Heavenly Father like God, knowing that that's true. I would much rather go to God knowing that He already knows what I want, He's already determined He's going to answer it, and He's already got a better answer than I could have come up with on my own. That's the God I want to pray to. In fact, I can go into that conversation all day, every day. The far harder conversation would be having to go to a God who is fickle and you don't know whether he's even going to get your attention and you don't know whether his plan for your life is better than what you would come up with on your own. And so biblical logic says that disciples and kingdom people are encouraged to go to God because of his omniscience, because of his graciousness, because of his compassion, because he's sovereign, because his will has determined what is good for you and is working all things to good. That should drive us to that conversation. Those conversations with God are amazing. And that's what motivates disciples of Jesus. His omniscience and compassion make us eager for prayer. And then in verse 6, Jesus says that his disciples set their private lives to be lives of prayer in their own homes, in their own bedrooms. Now listen, I know. I know And I am more than a little sad about the fact that at one point in my life, my own life, the only time I read the Bible and the only time I prayed was on Sunday mornings when it was basically read to me and when everybody stopped and prayed and it was socially appropriate for me to pray. And I know, and I know 
And I'm more than a little sad that many of you only read scripture when I put it on the screen for you. And that you only pray when we pray here on Sunday morning in a really meaningful or significant way. Now, I just want to tell you that I didn't have any private life of scripture reading or of prayer. If I read the Bible or prayed, it was only because it was the right social context for me to do it. And I can tell you that at that point in my life, it was before my faith was real. And part of that time was when my faith was very infantile, for lack of a better word. So Jesus here is saying, disciples, like these Pharisees, if the only time you pray is when it's socially appropriate for you to be seen praying, if you only read your Bible, I'm inserting that, Jesus didn't say it right here in the Sermon on the Mount, but it amounts to the same thing. If you only read your Bible when it's on the screen in front of you or when it's socially appropriate to do it, then you need to check your heart. Because my kingdom people, my disciples, are eager for prayer. They are eager for the scripture. And they have a private life of prayer in their own homes, in their own bedrooms, in their closet. They pray eagerly and are eager to pray to their heavenly Father. And I'm not saying that in a legalistic sense. Jesus says, I've fulfilled the law. This is not about obligation legalistically. This is about what is the new desire of your heart. My kingdom people, my disciples have new heartfelt desires and their desire is for their heavenly father. Matthew Henry once said, you may as soon find a living man who does not breathe as a living Christian who does not pray. And that's what Jesus is saying here. My disciples pray when nobody's watching. It's Jesus establishing the idea that we hear more commonly phrased today, your true self is who you are when nobody's looking. And so he challenges his disciples to not compare themselves to Pharisees or people who pray great at church or at prayer meeting. He's challenging his disciples to examine their heart and say, who are you when nobody's looking? When you're at home in your closet, are you eager to pray? And do you pray to a heavenly father from a sincere heart in this way? So he says here that disciples of Jesus are are people who treasure prayer with their father, no matter if anyone sees it or not. And then he goes on to fasting, Matthew 6, 16 to 18. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, We don't talk very much about fasting these days, even though it is a spiritual discipline that Jesus encourages his disciples to continue, and it's a profitable spiritual discipline. But it was a very common practice in Israel to fast. And as you read your Old Testament and and your New Testament, you will encounter over and over and over again various fastings of the people of Israel. Some of those fasts were private. Some of them were public. Sometimes the whole nation of God's people fasted at the same time. Sometimes it was a partial fast. Uh, Daniel only fasted from meat and ate only vegetables for a while. Um, There are different kinds of fasts that we see in Scripture. 
It was a very common practice. It's one of the core spiritual acts along with almsgiving and prayer. But just like the other two that Jesus has singled out, he targets the hypocrisy of the Pharisees fasting as well. Remember our pattern. He's contrasting hypocrisy with true practice and then with the Father's reward. Notice his words here. He says in 6.16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. They have received their reward. So one of the things that the people of God did often when they fasted is that they wore sackcloth and they sprinkled ashes on their heads as if they were at a funeral. They They were showing how much grief they had over their sin. But by the time of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they did this as a frequently, maybe once a week, maybe two, three times a month, the Pharisees would put on this daily uh, act of fasting as a means of demonstrating their holiness, not as a means of grieving their sin. And so they would put on the sackcloth and they would dishevel their hair and they wouldn't take a shower and they would put ashes and dirt on themselves. And people would be amazed at how repentant they were and how humble they were. And the Pharisees were extremely proud of their humility. They loved the fact that people saw them repentant and so grieved over their sin all the time. And Jesus says here in the text very plainly, plainly again that they are hypocrites and that they have their full reward from the attention that they get. And that is all they will get is the attention of men. Their fasting is meant to be directed towards God and for their own sanctification, but instead the Pharisees have aimed the display of their fast towards men and it's for their self-glorification rather than Christ-like transformation. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in terms of where the Pharisees are coming from in their fast. A fast is not meant to be self-glorifying. It's not meant to be... um, aimed at men. It is between you and God, Jesus says. He says, when you fast, nobody should know you're fasting. Now, a fast, if you were to do it, commonly comes from food. You commonly fast from food, but it can be from some other activity. The purpose of a fast is meant to teach us that our reliance is on the creator and not on the created. Fasting reminds us when we naturally seek to satisfy a desire through one of God's gifts to us, so when we go to eat or do some other thing that we are fasting from, in the moment of choosing not to satisfy our desire there, our attention is turned to the Creator and where our satisfaction should come from. That our praise is for the giver of the gift. And so when you are fasting properly, the temporary hunger is a reminder of God's eternal provision. And the hunger triggers us to pray and to seek in that moment. And the time and attention that we would normally give to food, we give to God instead. Or, if we are fasting from some other form of satisfaction, you can fast from television or fast from Facebook or fast even from something like gardening. Whatever it is that you have discovered has become your primary satisfaction or distraction then when we would normally sit down to watch TV or to catch up on Facebook or to putter in the garden, our fasting from that reminds us to seek God instead of seeking Pinterest or petunias. Fasting is meant to point us towards the creator rather than the created. It's between us and God. It is not to put on display before others. This is what Jesus is getting to. When you fast, make it about you and your humility, and your 
coming before God to give him praise as the created and the loosening of your grasp from the created. All of that is between you and God. It's for your own sanctification and your own transformation into Christ-likeness. It's not for us to make a grand show of how holy we are because our family doesn't have Disney Plus or we don't let our kids watch TV. Aren't we righteous people? Because that's what it can become even for us today as Christians. Even if we don't actually fast in the same way as the people of Israel did, I know you've all encountered believers who just can't wait to tell you how separate they are from the world and how everyone else should be as holy as they are. Or tell you what spiritual battles they've been winning lately and the dramatic results the Spirit is having wherever they go. Now again, just like prayer, we have to talk about what Jesus isn't saying here as well. Jesus is not saying don't ever fast. He's not even saying that it's never appropriate to share your fasting or to share your spiritual walk or your spiritual victories with somebody. But what he is saying is that those practices and those experiences are meant to be self-sanctifying and God-focused, not self-glorifying and man-focused. He teaches that Christian fasting is a normal part of healthy spiritual experience. Notice the words in verse 17. He says, But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, which is a repeat of verse 16, when you fast. Jesus assumes his disciples will fast, and in their fasting they will be rewarded if it is in secret. So wash your face, comb your hair, don't make a scene about it, but do fast. We do need to be distanced from the created and focus on the creator. Fasting is an important spiritual discipline for Christians because we are still existent here in this world and we still have a physical body and this world will do its best to distract us from the creator. And fasting says, God, I love you, not just your stuff. So we must be people who fast in the sense of holding loosely to the created and holding tightly to the created. And in your homework and in your life groups, you're going to unpack some more details about the kinds of fasts you can do and how fasts fit into your life. But before I finish this piece of text here, I want to talk about the rewards. Because there's one startling pattern that we see in this set of teaching which is the number of times that Jesus emphasizes Christian reward. Jesus is completely unashamed to say, if you are sincere in these areas of spiritual discipline, God will reward you. When God calls us to the Christian life, he's not calling us to give up everything for nothing. He calls us to give up what amounts to nothing in order to gain what is far better. But it's shocking to us, isn't it? It's a little bit weird for us to hear Jesus say, you know, if, if you act in this way as a Christian, do it because God's going to reward you. And there's something in us that we're wired quite rightly to think, well, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem sincere if we're doing it so that we get a reward. But that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, you can't deny the text here. He says three times in giving and prayer and in fasting that if you do these things sincerely, God's going to reward you. C.S. Lewis says so well, as he usually does, I think, in a new light, what Jesus is saying here. C.S. Lewis says, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of rewards makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. 
There is the reward which has no natural connection to the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love, and that is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Love C.S. Lewis. Just finds a way to say what I want to say ten times better. So I unashamedly quote him. But if you remember last week's message, that last sentence by Lewis there should ring with familiarity because you will remember that one of the key truths about God and the law is that the blessing of God is the command. It is obedience to the command that is itself the reward. Much as Lewis rephrases it here, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Practically then, in terms of these two spiritual duties of prayer and fasting, what is the reward? What is the reward of God the Father to his disciples who practice these commands from a sincere heart? In terms of sincere prayer, the reward of secret prayer is coming into the presence of a good Father who already knows us and has our concerns in mind. The Father says, bring your concerns to me. I already know about them and I already care about them and I care about them more than you do and I care about your concerns more effectively than you do. I will not always answer your prayers the way you pray for them. I will always answer them better than how you pray for them. The reward of sincere prayer is also the hallowing or the treasuring of God. It's our increased trust in Him for daily provision and the peace that flows from knowing that He is sovereign and in control of that provision. It's guidance and guarding against temptation, but most especially, Jesus highlights, the reward of sincere communion with the Father is the forgiveness of our sins and the capacity of our hearts to forgive others. That's the reward. There may be more reward later on, but that will just be icing on the cake compared to this reward that's right here and now. Sincere communion with the Heavenly Father leads us into the forgiveness of our sins and the capacity of our hearts to forgive others. We're true disciples of Christ and we're true image bearers of the Father when we remember that God forgave us and so therefore we forgive others and have the capacity to do that. And Jesus reinforces that particular reward with probably one of the scariest verses of the whole Bible. Verses 14 to 15. If you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, if we cannot find forgiveness in our own hearts, not even Jesus will confirm that we really are true image bearers of God. Jesus says in no uncertain terms, in a way that is fully meant to be shocking, my disciples are different than Gentiles and Pharisees. They are identified out of the sincerity of their heart. They are image bearers of the Father because they can humble themselves to ask forgiveness and that they can offer forgiveness out of a sincere heart. That's how they know they are image bearers of God. 
But the reward of the secret prayer life is the knowledge that we are daily bringing ourselves before a God who is just to forgive us and gives us the capacity to forgive others. The power of the cross is that it has set us free from the bondage of unforgiveness. It has set us free to be forgiven and free to forgive by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the reward of secret prayer, that we have that communion with the Father and that he is sanctifying us. Does that mean we're going to forgive everything that's ever been done against us in the next five minutes or even the next five weeks? Maybe not. But I will tell you, if you are not in regular communion with the Heavenly Father, seeking forgiveness for yourself and the capacity to forgive others, it will be a long, long time until that fruit grows up in your life. The reward of secret prayer is all of these things. And then in terms of fasting, what is the reward in obedience to fasting, the immediate reward in terms of sincere fasting? Well, I would say a deeper sense of dependence on on God, a heightened sense of our need for him, and that his satisfaction is greater than satisfaction gained anywhere else. I'd love to eat that supper tonight, but you know what? This time, this supper for this day or this couple of days, I'm not going to eat that supper, and I'm going to make my physical body talk to my spiritual body and tell me that there is a better provision even than my dinner tonight. I'm going to remember where the gift comes from. And by fasting on a regular basis and knowing that his satisfaction is greater than a satisfaction gained anywhere else, it loosens my grasp on that thing. Right? Rather than just instantly flipping open Facebook when I wake up in the morning. Or rather than just checking to see how many likes my Twitter post got. I'm going to set myself free from that that will ultimately become bondage in my life if I don't loosen my grasp on those things. They will take over me. And so the reward of sincere fasting is that we are set free from that bondage of the created and we are bound closer to the Creator. The reward of being set free from shallow pleasures and laying hold of a more profound pleasure. The reward of loosening the grasp of the things the world has on us and strengthening our grasp on the giver of the gifts. The concluding statement of this section is not actually where your Bible inserts an arbitrary paragraph break. I think if you read carefully, the natural conclusion to this section of text is verse 21. And we're going to cover this more in depth next week. But it applies here. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So remember, Jesus started with this warning. He said, Beware. Beware that you do not practice your righteousness the way the Pharisees do. And then he finishes this section, and he concludes it with, After all of this commendation, after all of this exhortation, Jesus finishes this by saying, Where your treasure is, is where your heart will be also. Jesus is asking his disciples to test their hearts in these three spiritual disciplines. That he relates ever so closely to our relationship with God the Father, not with each other. You notice how these three are are distinct from the previous six. The previous six were, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, this is how you're going to treat each other. I tell you, you're going to treat each other even better. You've heard it said that this level of grace and mercy is enough. I'm telling you that there's even more grace and compassion and mercy required of my people. That's the pattern of the first six. These three, he says, you think this is what what your spiritual discipline is for. I'm telling you this is what it's for. 
You think man is watching. I'm telling you the Father is watching. And he concludes it by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is asking his disciples to test their heart in these three things because he has related them so closely to our relationship with God the Father, not with each other, but with God. And his final verdict for this test is this. You will know that you truly, what you truly treasure because your heart will be there. Is your heart focused on the creator or is it the created? Is your heart on the pleasure of God or on the adulation of men? Jesus says, my disciples' hearts and treasure are fixed firmly on the Father and you will know it by how you practice these disciplines. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. This first teaching of Jesus in Matthew is long, it's large, and it's serious. It's intense, and we're taking it in big chunks. And so, Father, I pray that we would see what Jesus is saying to each of our hearts, and each of us will have to apply it differently. There is no way we can go through this text and just pretend like it lands on everybody exactly the same. There's lots of ways we can go through this text and think of people we know and say, oh, they should listen to this. It's a lot harder to go through it and say, I need to listen to this. And so, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit that each one of us, including me, have our hearts and our eyes and our minds open to what Jesus would speak into our lives right now today. Where is our treasure? What are we holding firmly to? How are we practicing our Christian walk? Is it sincerely, privately, between me and you? Or is it on display to somehow think we're going to fool the people around us? So we're not fooling you. Father, make us people of sincere hearts towards you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.